Welcome to Family Room Discussions, where I open up my family room to talk about the week's lessons from Come Follow Me. I'm not a church historian or a scripture scholar. I'm just an average Latter-day Saint seeking to grow my faith in Christ and deepen my testimony of the gospel and the scriptures. Discussing Come Follow Me with others helps me in my conversion. I hope you'll join in the gospel dialogue by sharing your insights. Without further ado, let's start this family room discussion. Sisters and brothers, family and friends, this is episode 28, following along with Ye Shall Be Witnesses Unto Me, Acts chapter 1 through 5. I took a, uh, a break for the last month uh, through July of recording and doing the podcast. Spent a lot of time with family and traveling and uh, doing activities with the kids and stuff. And so I just took a break and we're back. So you'll see a bunch of episodes being released over the next couple days and weeks to get caught up. Uh, mostly through Acts because in current time we should be in Romans already. But yeah, so I apologize for the break. I didn't actually like plan it. It just happened that way. And then I was like, yeah, we're taking a a break from recording just through acts, apparently. Uh, so anyway, glad to be back. It's been, uh, it was a fun July. Did a lot with the family and the kids. And it's, it's fun being at that age where, you know, they want to do stuff. And it's just, we're, Lex and I are entering into a new phase of, of familyhood. So, uh, let's get into the introduction. Have you ever wondered what Peter might have been thinking and feeling when he, when he, with the other apostles, looked steadfastly toward heaven as Jesus ascended to his father? The church that was founded by the Son of God was now in Peter's care. The task of leading the effort to teach all nations now rested on him. But if he felt inadequate or afraid, we don't find any evidence of that in the book of Acts. What we do find are examples of fearless testimony and conversion— miraculous healings, spiritual manifestations, and significant growth for the church. This was still the Savior's church, still led by him. In fact, the book of Acts of the Apostles could also be called the Acts of Jesus Christ through his apostles. Guided by an outpouring of the Spirit, Peter was no longer the unlearned fisherman Jesus found on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, nor was he the distraught man who only weeks earlier was weeping bitterly because he had denied that he even knew Jesus of Nazareth. In the book of Acts, you will read powerful declarations about Jesus Christ and his gospel. You will also see uh, you will also see how that gospel can change people, including you, into the valiant disciples God knows they can be. And I think that's probably my favorite part about the New Testament is that we do, in a lot of ways, get to see the change and growth that happens when uh, the, the apostles, the disciples, and by personal application here, us, how we can change and how our, you know, small works can go into big works when we commit ourselves to the gospel, commit ourselves to Christ. And so, um, a couple background things. The book of Acts continues on, uh, with the writings of Luke. Um, you can see in the very first verse, it talks about that it's still directed toward Theophilus and this is a continuation of the letter. So my mission president had taught me this and helped me, me in my studying. If you ever read the New Testament again, and we will obviously, but uh, just through the course of Sunday school. But when you read it, you have an opportunity to read it in a kind of unique way. If you want, you could read it where it's Matthew and Mark and John, and then read Luke. And then as you read Luke, continue straight into Acts. And that's the best kind of chronological view you can get. And then the epistles of Paul, um, everything that comes after Acts, 
uh, was put differently, and we'll talk about that once we get to Romans, but it's not chronological. So the reading, the order of reading in the New Testament is actually kind of, I mean, it's just wrong because they ordered it by length. So from biggest to smallest or shortest. So uh, this is just an interesting way that you can go about reading it if that uh, helps you. And it helped me. I really enjoyed that because you go from Luke's writing style to remain in Luke's writing style, and it's not very confusing at all. So in the first section, it says Jesus Christ directs his church through the Holy Ghost. And focusing predominantly on chapters 1 and 2 of Acts, in verse 15 of chapter 1, it says, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of his disciples and said the number of names together were about 120. In parentheses, I just want to point out that the church did not begin with a huge following. Uh, the church Christ established, it says there was only 120 people there, or 120 names. And there's a lot of parallels as we read through Acts, as we read through um, the different epistles and works of the apostles to the, the Latter-day Restoration um, in the church, right? We only started with six members, or at least six members to organize, and there, there were more there, but uh, six members in our restored church, uh, there's, there's obviously going to be a lot of parallels here, which I think are interesting as we read that. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 24 and 26, it says, And they prayed and said, Thou Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, shew whether of these two thou hast chosen. This is, uh, background is trying to pick a, uh, a new apostle to replace the seed of Judas Iscariot. In verse 25, That he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And I just think the way that they chose a new apostle was interesting. They cast lots. Um, they obviously picked good men to, to be there. It wasn't just like a random pool, but they still, they did it by casting lots. The succession plan of the apostles is extremely unique. I don't know. I, I highly doubt that they cast lots to pick new apostles. Um, but it is still chosen by worthy and honorable men, guided by the Holy Ghost. And then uh, as far as within the succession of the apostles, it's done by, you know, seniority date, who has been an apostle the longest, obviously moves up. Uh, very unique succession plan, and it it's really can't be found anywhere else. Um, I, I think it's amazing that it works as well as it does. There's there's order, there's no confusion, and all guided by the, the Spirit. And like I said, Christ is at the head of his church to this day. And so it's it's I just pointed this out because it's interesting to see how in the ancient church, this was the first time they had to do it, and this is what they did. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Others mocking, this is on the day of Pentecost, they've received uh, the Holy Ghost, they're talking in tongues, and... It says, others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. And I just want to point out uh, this thought, which is that there will always be those who cannot receive intelligence. There will be those who will find ways to, to mock sacred things or to mock spiritual things. And this is back from uh, Nephi and Lehi's vision, where they see uh, the tower of people mocking of those taking of the fruit. Be those who are taking the fruit and ignoring the the laughter from the uh, the great and spacious building. It's it's difficult, it's hard, 
Um, I know this is something that I struggle with of not in being swayed directly by the, the mocking from the tower, but I always want to be sensitive. I want to be sensitive to others' feelings and want to make sure that I'm not being that guy, that person who uh, boldly bears testimony at the expense of, you know, wrecking relationships. This is something I struggle with because on, on one hand, I think it's it's a good thing to want to do things in wisdom and, uh, and correctly, intelligently, but not at the expense of catering to the mocking voices and to, to those in the tower. And so finding that balance is, is hard because I've seen the negatives and the impacts of, of the opposite where it's like, I stand bold no matter what. I bear testimony all the time. And um, the, some of the negative consequences of that attitude are that then nobody's listening and uh, it drives everyone away. So striking a balance is important, but recognizing that if you're too worried to raise your voice, you're, you're not in a position to help God's work. And so be willing to raise your voice. Uh, moving on to the, so yeah, moving on to the second section, it says the principles and ordinances of the gospel help me come unto Christ Two just kind of easy thoughts here. First in Acts chapter two, verse 37 to 38, it says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive of the Holy Ghost. In the most simple and plain way, this is the gospel. When someone asks, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is it. What Peter says here, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, the, the one step that had already happened prior, so he didn't need to say it, but it's have faith. Those four things with endure to the end. That is the gospel. And um, it's simple. It's easy. Anyone can understand it. And sometimes when we're asked, we're like, ah, well, the gospel is, I mean, it's so grand. How am I supposed to explain it? It's its simple. It's simple and it's easy and uh, can be recited through an article of faith. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, church has been established they're, they're organized and they're coming together. They're gaining new members. And it says, and all that believed were together and had all things common. So the law of consecration was essentially established from the beginning of Christ's church. And they were working on living it. And, and uh, I'll, talk, I'll talk about this just in a minute once we get to section. Well, actually, it'll be at the end. I want to talk about this. Uh, not even in this section, just an additional thought sort of thing. But the law of consecration is not socialism. It is not co communism. I have heard this mistake um, shared by members where they say, well, I mean, we will technically live in a communistic government style during the law of consecration. That is a, uh, a great misunderstanding and a great error um, to believe that it's the same. It is not. The reason it's not, just um, one point right from the beginning is, the, and I said, again, I'll talk about this later. So I don't want to get ADD here. The reason it's not the very first point is just that the law of consecration is completely done by agency, whereas communism, socialism, these typically have to be forced governmental styles. The best intentions have yet to um, have yet to yield results from these types of governments. You can look at the history of the world 
we have never had a successful communistic uh, government or society function or socialistic society function. They are not the same. Uh, it is a counterfeit. Socialism, communism are counterfeits. Uh, Satan's counterfeits of God's perfect government is what it is. And I'll talk about that more at the end. In section four, it says, Disciples of Jesus Christ are given power to perform miracles in his name. And in Acts 4, verse 10, it says, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom he crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. They heal uh, the man at the temple. He becomes a convert. And they they show forth that, that work to the people. And for me... As I ponder this, it's Christ's work wasn't over after he was crucified. Um, it, in many ways, that was the the great act of uh, the great miracle that we needed for all of us. But but once it was done, the work could truly explode and go forward. Because again, if it, if Christ wasn't able to perform his work, then everything else after didn't matter. But because he was able to perform his work, now the greatest works can happen. Um, well, there's no greater work than the than the atonement of Christ, but meaning of us for our own faith, we're able to um, perform those miracles knowing that he did his work. He completed it. And so as it carries on and as Christ prophesied that the work was carried on by his apostles, the church was able to continue. And I think when you look at the fall of one leader, uh, what typically happens is that when the next person who takes up the mantle uh, of that work they usually want all the glory for themselves. And then the work of the original typically falls or fails um, or declines or, or whatever, right? It, it does not flourish, but that has not been and was not the case in God's church that uh, Peter, who takes up the mantle of leader, continues to give all glory to God. And because of that, was able to establish more surely the kingdom of God. And then in our day, our day, the same thing. Joseph Smith uh, was the the vessel to restore the church, but always gave credit and glory to God, that it was God's church, it was God's work, and that uh, he was simply the messenger, the prophet, to carry that out. And it's the same with our modern day prophet now, uh, President Russell M. Nelson. It's not his church, it's not his glory, it's God's glory, and he's simply the, the mouthpiece for the Lord. And so that's ultimately why God's church continues to flourish and to go forward. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, it says, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And if this is an important teaching for us, something to remember is that if we set our priorities on God, then uh, if we set our priorities on God and we never let another person or another priority supersede that, then we will be set up for success and um, will be on the correct path for conversion. In Acts chapter 5, verses 38 to 39, it says, And now I say unto you, refrain from these, these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. Lest happily you be found even to fight against God. And I love this part. This is where the, uh, well, the chief... Pharisees, um, and I don't know how to pronounce his name, Gamaliel, uh, he'll come up actually because he was the teacher of Paul or Saul, and 
was a very influential Pharisee, a very influential uh, man in, amongst the Jews. He understood the law, and he actually gives the counsel to the Pharisees when they want to kill Paul or kill Peter, excuse me, and remove the church sort of thing. Sort of, uh, sort of thing. He essentially says, look, if this is of God, then there's nothing that we could do. And will we end up being, we'll fight against God. He had wisdom here. Um, and so because of that, we see that Christ's work did in fact continue. His testimony actually stands that because it did continue and has continued, um, anyone who fights against it is actually fighting against God. And finally, in Acts 5 chapter, or excuse me, Acts chapter 5 verse 41, it says, And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Um, Peter, the other apostles, they leave this council. They kind of, they survived their court date. And I love that it says they, they rejoiced being counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I think we would do well to have the same attitude when we suffer in the name of the gospel is, is recognizing that it'll be counted worthy unto us because we suffered. And, and that's conversion. The fact that they were, they rejoiced here shows their conversion, shows their level of conversion, and it's a pattern for us that uh, we can do the same and we should do the same. Now, I said I want, th that's that's what I got from the lesson, but I did say I want to uh, come back to this, this law of consecration. So why do I say that it's agentive um, as one of the first keystones kind of thing of, or the first keys to the difference between communism, socialism, and the law of consecration? In Acts chapter 5, verse 4, uh, we find out, beginning in this, we, we, you know, chapter four leading into five, there's this couple, this couple dies in a kind of miraculous way, not meaning in a necessarily good way. They, they're struck dead instantly. And it's because they try to rob this, uh, this new community that's formed, this new law of consecration community. And so I'll, I'll read some background here, five for ver, verse one. It says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled the heart, thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Walls it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast lied that has not lied unto men, but unto God. The lesson here was that under the law of consecration, um, it's a conversion to that if we are all God's children, then we can trust one another to work towards a greater good, a greater, uh, a peaceful society, a happy society, one that's free of sin, greed, pride, uh, ego. It's not about who has more or who has the more power. The, the difficulty here is you have to be able to trust every single member of that society then, or else it falls apart. So when Peter says that hasn't lied unto men, you've lied unto God, it was that they had made a covenant. They had agreed to enter into the society and were not forced at all uh, to do it. It was, it was agentive. If you didn't want to be a part of it, you didn't have to be a part of it, but they had agreed to, and then went against the covenant they had made and tried to keep back some of the sale of this property, this money to be able to have, you know, extra. 
And so they'd already right there let pride and greed enter into their hearts after they'd made the covenant, uh, not just for themselves, but with this this uh, new society to form. And they'd already let Satan enter. And so um, God miraculously kills them, strikes them down because they immediately uh, it would have it would have destroyed from the get go the society because again if we could I mean we could just do this thought experiment let's say that we enter you and I enter into this agreement that you and I will share everything that that uh, financially and property and everything t- uh, together and for the first while everything's great and um, we are working together for common for each other's common good you can trust me and I can trust you. And then after a while, you find out that I have actually been um, holding back some sales that I've made or whatever, some some financial gain. And I've been using that to, outside of your knowledge, purchase, you know, whatever I want. Marbles. I've been purchasing bags and bags of marbles and have been storing them up, uh, you know, outside of your knowledge. The moment you find that out, it immediately hurts trust, it burns trust. This uh, this concept actually, I'm thinking back to my high school days, comes from a book, it's called Animal Farm. If you've read it, then you'll know what I'm talking about, where the pigs uh, kind of do this. At first, the farm starts out where it's like, we're all going to work together for each other's good. And then over time, the pigs start um, kind of controlling the society by by taking this... The, the, the excess and doing what they want with it and turn out to be as bad, if not worse, than the original kind of farmer in this. And that is the consequences of communism, socialism. So the reason it's different is because in those government structures, there's, there really is one person or one group in power, and it's not an agentive society. You don't get to agree necessarily to be a part of it. Maybe in the beginning that's how it starts, but that's not how it goes and that's not how it ends. Under the law of consecration, where God is in charge, we can trust that we have a perfect leader and um, the consequences for breaking that, well, in this case, it was death, but theoretically, it would be the expulsion from that society. It would be the rejection. Uh, You're not forced to stay. You'd actually be forced to leave. Whereas under communism or socialism, historically, you've actually just been killed or, you know, thrown in jail or or what have you. So it's it's different. The reason and it's different because of the consequences honestly. So I I say that and I passionately say that because I do think there is I've heard this this confusion amongst members where they think that the law of consecration and communism or socialism are the same and they are not. Uh, they're not for a lot of reasons but for the main reason because of agency and the consequences of that agency. So that's a, yeah, that's the thought I want to share. All right. I, uh, from this lesson, I know that we're behind, but still want to offer an invitation. I want to invite you to ponder what you're doing right now to carry on God's work. How, how are you specifically, what are you doing in your life to carry on God's work? Um, and consciously decide this week what more you're going to do to move that work forward. Thank you for joining in my family room discussion, and until we meet again, have a blessed week.